Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, then those of you who have your Bibles here can open it with me to Mark chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 2. Before I, before I read that, I just want to read also from Mark chapter 3, just a sort of theme scripture for this, for this weekend from verse 13. Um, it says, And he went up, to the, uh, up on the mountain and called to him those he desired or those he wanted, and they came to him. And, and I just want you to notice that when Jesus calls us higher, he calls us to himself. Okay? He's calling us higher because he's calling us to himself, and he's calling us to himself because he wants us. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus wants you. <laughs> And doesn't that make you feel loved, that Jesus wants you? The most impressive person in the universe wants you. Okay, my, my, my wife really likes Thor, you know, in the Marvel movies, because he's really buff and he's, he's got guns, you know, and he's, and he's got those long blonde hair, that long blonde hair, and the beard and stuff. So she, she, she really likes Thor. But Thor is a, is a wannabe God. He's not a, even a real God. Jesus <laughs> is a real God, you know. <laughs> He's much more impressive than Thor, you know. Now, you know, if Thor were real, you know, if he were real, you know, just imagine how you'd feel if he liked you and he wanted to be buddies with you. Okay? Well, you, you should feel even more so based on the fact that Jesus actually wants you and wants to be friends with you. In fact, wants to be family with you. Then he, then he goes on and it says, um, And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, in other words, special sent ones, so that, he might, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And the first thing that Jesus appoints us to do is not to go and preach and not to go and cast out demons and not to go and heal the sick. The first thing that he appoints us to do is to be with him. And that's very important to notice because it's so easy for us as Christians to become um, focused on works, you know, and become little Pharisees who think that, you know, all that we're good for is to do stuff for God. The reality is that Jesus God doesn't need us to do anything. The reason why He involves us in doing things and doing what He does is not because He needs us to do it. He wants to involve us so that we can participate in His purposes and have true community with Him. But He calls us first and foremost to be with Him. And it's only out of that place of being with Him that we can go out and do like Him and be like Him to the world. Um, and the order here is important. Coming to Jesus because we know He wants us and He loves us and then being appointed by Him to be with Him and then only does He send us out to go and say what he said, to preach the word, and to do what he did, to go and cast out demons and, 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 and minister in practical ways. Okay. So um, just as an example of that, I, I want to go to, to Mark chapter 2. 
and read you a very well-known portion of Scripture uh, about Jesus healing the uh, paralytic. I'm, I'm reading it from the NIV, Mark chapter 2 from verse 1. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He blasph- he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So, Lord, we just want to thank you for your word, Lord, which is is so precious, Lord God, and which, Lord, you use, Lord, not only to, Lord, instruct our hearts, but to feed our hearts. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that as you minister your word to us, that we will really feed on your word and really be nourished by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I just want you to see three things about Jesus from this passage. Uh, there's a lot there, but I, I, I just want you to th- see three things. Firstly, I want you to see Jesus' radical hospitality. Then I want you to see Jesus' radical heart. And then I want you to see Jesus' radical healing. Um, and and it's, it's so beautiful to me because this picture, this, this whole portion just puts Jesus on display in such a beautiful way. Um, The first thing I want you to notice, it says a a few days later, when Jesus uh, again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, if you just read the the end of the previous chapter, it says um, that people were, you know, Jesus healed someone and they went out and and spoke freely about him. And it says, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter the town openly, but stayed uh, outside in lonely places. Yet the people came to him from everywhere. In other words, Jesus had just come out of a time of very intensive ministry where he was just swamped with people with needs. And he was just ministering to them all the time. He'd just come back from that. And he'd just come home. And I can just imagine that he was pretty tired. You know, if you've been traveling around and, you know, if you've ministered to people, if you've ever preached a lot or if you've, um, say, over a weekend helped to facilitate our legacy you know, and, and really prayed for people and ministered intensively to people, you're pretty tired. You're not only physically drained, you're emotionally drained. You feel good because it's amazing to see what God does, you know, and, and, and it's really enjoyable, but it's pretty tiring. I remember, you know, Trevor and them always telling me, you know, after kids' church, you know, they, 
They, they, they're really fired up because, you know, of what God has done in the kids' lives, but they're really tired as well, you know. So I can imagine Jesus was pretty tired as well. And then, you know, the news spread that he's come home, and people just come from everywhere, and they just flood his house, literally, just flood his house. So, you know, I just want you to see Jesus' hospitality. He's just come out of a time of intensive ministry. He's pretty tired. What we would probably want to do is say, listen, for a week, I'm going to just withdraw, lock all the doors, bar the gates. No one comes close to me. I'm tired. I'm going to rest. But just notice Jesus' radical hospitality. Even after a time of intensive ministry, he opens his doors. He opens his home, and people come in. And notice it says, uh, it talks about he came back to Capernaum, and people heard that he had come home. And then the people gathered in the house. And it seems, now that little phrase there, um, he had come home. I, th- I think that's a good translation. Also, uh, I'm not going to read it now because my wife says I, I have very little time. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 34, and, and in, in 1 Corinthians 40, 35, uh, 14, 35, it actually uses that same phrase where it says, um, you know, in the context of women who were, who were never allowed into the synagogue or into the, the temple who are now all of a sudden and not, never even allowed her education in those days, are now all of a sudden allowed into the Christian church as equal members of the church like men, uh, but they have sort of a bit of a knowledge, um, you know, disadvantage, you know. So he said, don't shout out questions in the service if you don't know something. Rather go home and ask your husband. Now, uh, ask your husband at home. Now, it's exactly that same phrase, at home. Ask your husband at home. It's exactly that fra- same phrase where it says, when they heard Jesus was at home. Okay, that is used here. So clearly, that's, it seems that's, that's what it means, you know. Which means was that this house that we're talking about where the gathering took place seems to have been Jesus' home, where he was staying. I, mean, I don't know whether he was renting it or whether he bought it or what it was, but it seems to have been his home, okay. So not only has he, after a time of intensive ministry, when he was obviously tired, opened up his home for people to come in, but he, I mean, just notice a few things here. He welcomes so many people that the house is packed. There's no more room in the house. I mean, there's only standing room. I mean, there isn't even standing room in the house, but there's only standing room outside the door. Even outside the door, there are people standing around. And, you know, that's, just notice the radical hospitality. I mean, who of us would do that? Who of us comfortable Westerners, because that's what most of us are, would open our homes to that extent, would be that radically hospitable. You know, we, we, we'd say, no, you know, it's too many people, you know. Or we do it once, and then we say, never again. <laughs> but notice Jesus' radical hospitality. Okay? He, he, he really opens up his home, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't mind the discomfort He doesn't mind people swamping him because people have needs and he opens his home and he preaches the word to them. And, um, you know, that, that, that just, that just shows us also, you know, the fact that he preached the word to them, uh, that, you know, the hospitality, because I mean, the word he preached, we know was the gospel, which is an invitation. So he's, he's saying, I don't only welcome you into my home, I welcome you into my kingdom. If you are willing to repent and believe, enter in through the door, 
he says in another place, I am the door, then I welcome you into my kingdom. So it's not only physical hospitality that he's showing, it's spiritual hospitality. Inviting people into his family, into his kingdom, into his father's house, as it were. So I want you to see Jesus' radical hospitality, and I want you to be challenged by it, like I am challenged by it. Because Jesus shows a lot more hospitality than I'm showing at the moment. And I want to be challenged by Jesus' hospitality to actually show more hospitality. And that means probably I'm going to have to worry less about what my house looks like. Oh, I can't invite people into my house, you know, because there's washing lying around and the dishes aren't always washed. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a stack in the sink, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't always, you know, listen to my wife and pack the, 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 <laughs> the dishwasher as often as I should, you know. Um, and, you know, my food's not as nice as, you know, whoever else's. doesn't matter. I think we worry too much about those things. It's clear Jesus didn't worry about that. What are the things that are the practical things, like, you know, my house is not clean enough, or I don't have enough food, or this or that or the other, that is currently holding you back from showing more radical hospitality to people. Just think for that for a moment. Just think about one thing. Just think about one thing. Do you think Jesus would have allowed that reason to hold him back from showing hospitality to people? Clearly not, right? But then I want to take it a step further. I want you to see um, Jesus's, just his radical heart. And we see it in his, his radical heart of love, in, in, or I see it in this text in two ways. The first thing is, the first way is, his art of love caused him to allow people into his house. Lots, not only lots of people into his house, but everyone into his house. Even people who didn't like him. Even people who were suspicious of him. Even people who had hatred in their heart towards him. Even people who would eventually kill him and cru- by crucifying him. He allowed even those people into his house. And he allowed, here's the, here's the thing, and, and that's what verse, verse, verse 6 and, and 7 says. Let me just actually read that. It says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, or thinking in their hearts, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so they have this suspicion and even this distrust and even hatred in their hearts towards Jesus. But here's the thing. The next verse says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Jesus didn't only allow people with malice in their hearts towards him into his house. He allowed them in knowing what was in their hearts. That is one of the most amazing things about God and about Jesus to me. Not only that he knows what's going on in the scribes and the Pharisees' hearts and he loves them and ministers to them nevertheless, but that he knows what's going on in my heart (laughs) and he loves me and ministers to me nevertheless. You know, we might think, oh, you know, those scribes and Pharisees, you know, you know, look at them, you know, look what's going on in their hearts, you know. Let's be honest about what's going on in our hearts. 
a lot of times, very often, we don't give Jesus the glory that's due to him. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, all have sinned and, and, and have neglected to give God, give Jesus the glory that is due to him. All have sinned. I do it regularly. Sometimes I catch myself doing it and I repent. But I do it. And Jesus knows every moment of every day what's going on in my heart. And he still loves me. He still loves me. Think about this for a moment. Just, just really let this sink into your heart for a moment. You know, Two of our deepest desires, which are in tension with one another, is number one, we want to really be known for who we are, for who we truly are. But then we also want to be accepted for who we truly are. Okay? The problem is, often with people, when they know, when they discover who we truly are, they no longer want to accept us because they don't like what they see inside of us. The nastiness, the unkindness sometimes, the harshness that can sometimes be there, the selfishness that can sometimes be there in all of us. And they don't even see all the way to the bottom of our hearts. Jesus sees all the way to the bottom of our hearts and he still accepts us. Which means that there's nothing you have to hide from him. He already knows. In fact, there's nothing you can hide from him. He already knows everything about you and he still loves you. You're safe with him. What your heart needs most to be truly known and to be truly accepted can only be found at the same time in Jesus Christ. No one else can give that to you because no one else can fully know you and no one else can fully accept you. Okay? Do you see Jesus' heart? He allows people into his house knowing what's going on in their hearts. But not only that, it, it says these four friends in, in, in verse 4, they made an opening in the roof. I, was, I mean, I can just imagine this scene. Jesus teaching, preaching the word, you know, the f- scribes and the people and the whoever else, tax collectors and whoever else came to listen to Jesus sitting around there. And all of a sudden, dust starts falling, you know, from the roof onto people's heads. And people are like, what's going on? You know, looking up and all of a sudden a, a hole gets ripped into the, into the roof. And how it worked in those days, you know, people lived in sort of mud huts. Um, like you still get in South Africa in, in many places. Uh, what they do is they take sticks and stuff and they cover it with, with mud. Sometimes, if they were really fancy, they use, you know, brick, but that was not very common at all. It was mostly sticks and so on, and then covered with, with mud. And then the roof would also be like sticks, you know, and then covered with mud, you know. And then sometimes they'd make, or very often actually, because those little, you didn't have a ceiling, so it would get really hot in the summer. So, so they'd make little steps up the side on the outside of the house uh, and, and ma- make sure that the roof is strong enough so you can actually go and sit on the roof, uh, you know, in the cool of the day and, and actually, you know, cool down a bit. So these guys, they could, there was, you know, the, the, the house was so packed, they couldn't get in to take their friend to Jesus. And, and um, they went up the steps on the outside, up onto the roof, and they started ripping Jesus' roof apart ripping out uh, the mud and the sticks and stuff and making a big old hole in the roof. Okay? Now get this. Jesus is standing there. And and it says, when he saw their faith. Jesus is standing there teaching. All of a sudden his roof is coming down on his head and being ripped open. I mean, how would you feel if someone went onto your roof and started ripping up, open your roof and bashing holes into your ceiling? How would you feel about that? 
Jesus hardly even notices the people destroying his roof. All he sees is their faith. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that tell you something about Jesus' heart? They're busy destroying his roof. They're busy damaging his house. You know, now he must go and put in an insurance claim. <laughs> Without insurance, Palestine, or Israel, or whatever they're called. Uh, but he, he, doesn't have a, he doesn't have a keen world about that. He, all these, you know, people are like, oh, they're destroying his roof. And Jesus is like, oh, they have such great faith. I'm sure Jesus was the only one in that room who noticed their faith, not the destruction that they were perpetrating against his roof. But that's his heart. Now, when we show hospitality to people, do we notice the inconvenience, the damage, the cost to us? Because it always costs something to show hospitality, to invite community and to facilitate community. It always costs something. Or do we notice people's, people's faith? And the need that brought them to come to Jesus, to come to us for community. What do we notice? Do we notice the same thing that Jesus noticed? Or do we just notice the roof being destroyed? Do we just notice the cost to us? Are you willing to suffer loss to be hospitable like Jesus was? Hospitality is a very powerful thing. It's a very ordinary, everyday thing, but it's a very powerful thing. We don't realize how powerful it is. It says, remember to show hospitality because some have, 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 have entertained angels unaware, referring to Genesis 18, when doing that, to, to Abraham and Lot, and, and, and how they did that. Um, and hospitality is actually a very simple thing. If you're an average human being, you eat three times a day, which means you eat 21 times a week. How much does it really cost you to say, I'm going to take three of those 21 meals and I'm going to share them with someone else? How powerful an opportunity for community would that be if we did that? If, if we said, for instance, on a, on a Wednesday evening, we're going to host a meal for our small group. On a Sunday afternoon after church, we're going to invite someone to come and eat with us. How much does it really cost? Not that much. But how, how much impact does it have? A huge impact. A massive impact. Um, Francis Schaeffer was one of the, the greatest apologists and evangelists of the previous century, um, of the 20th century. And he created sort of a house, a commune in, uh, called Labrie uh, in the mountains somewhere in, in Europe. I can't even remember exactly where it was. Switzerland. In Switzerland. Uh, and he was such a gifted speaker and such a gifted apologist. He could really reason with people very gently, um, but help people to open their minds. People who were very secular and very against Christianity and against God and, and very atheistic. And there are tons of testimonies of people who got saved. People who were completely unchurched, you know, radically and vehemently and, um, atheistic or at least agnostic, coming to, to Labrie, to Francis Schaeffer and his family, and living there. They allowed the people to live there, okay? And then all these students or whatever they were, or people, you know, just drifters, you know, would drift in and out, would eat meals with them and so on, and they'd talk about the Bible and talk about philosophy and talk about God and reason together. 
and hundreds and thousands of people got saved. And many of the greatest apologists today got saved under Francis Schaeffer's ministry. But if you listen to their testimonies, they say that they got saved as much because of Francis Schaeffer's wife. And I don't even know what her name was. Do you know what her name was? I don't even know what her name was. But they say, almost all of them say they got, uh, you know, his wife played as much of a role of them getting saved as Francis Schaeffer himself did. Because she was the one who worked hard, who prepared all the meals, who, who sort of was the mother of the house, and who treated them like children, who, who helped them to, to, to sort of settle in and, and made the meals for them and, and sort of rallied them and got them all to do their chores and so on. And they say for the first time in their lives in, in Labri, they experienced what family was supposed to be. And for many of them, it wasn't the, just the intellectual conviction and reasoning um, that Francis Schaeffer brought that convinced them. It was the family love that his wife, the environment that his wife created, the hospitality of his wife that, he, that, that ultimately turned their hearts. Uh, a friend of mine, um, Marionette, was telling me about a friend she had who, who was raised in a, uh, who studied with her in, in Stellenbosch and was raised in an absolutely broken home, you know, divorce and just devastation, you know, like you cannot believe. And, and she just didn't believe in family at all. She, the her only association with family was hurt and rejection and, you know, abuse. And eventually she got saved because um, Herki Sonnenberg, who's, who's, who's with us in the congregation, he's, uh, I can't remember what happened, but they somehow got invited to their house. And if you know the Sonnenbergs, they're a very godly family. they they this kind of really hospitable family, open doors, invite everyone in. And, and this, this girl was saying for the first time in her life, she saw what family could be, what family should be in a godly way. And all they did was they just lived their lives in front of, in front of these, these young people. And, and this, this girl, I mean, she'd, she'd had people invited to church. She'd heard the gospel. She'd heard dozens of people's testimonies. She'd come to small group. None of that actually changed the heart. But what ultimately changed the heart was that hospitality and just her seeing what Christian family could be like. In our day and age, love and authenticity are the ultimate apologetic. Ultimately, that is the thing that convinces people that God is real and that Jesus is real and that the gospel is true. When they experience that love that Jesus showed through us. But not only do we see Jesus' radical heart, but we see his his radical healing. And I want to try and finish this quickly. Um, this paralytic is, is what happened here is not only a historic event that actually happened like that but, but Mark chooses it for, for, reason, for other reasons I mean there are many miracles that Jesus did that are not recorded in scripture but the reason he records this one and many others as well is you know they also symbolize something and this paralytic symbolizes all of us and all, uh, before we come to Christ. And, and he symbolizes all of our friends who have not yet, and family who have not yet come to Christ. And all of our colleagues. You see, the, the, the condition that this paralytic had was, he was paralyzed. 
And obviously, because he was paralyzed, I'm sure he, he, he couldn't go around, you know, to, to where Jesus was ministering. So he'd probably never met Jesus before, never heard Jesus preach before, okay? But he needed Jesus to fix him, and Jesus was the only one who could fix him and heal him. But the very thing he needed Jesus to fix, to heal, was keeping, away from, keeping him away from Jesus. His paralysis. The fact that he was paralyzed meant that he couldn't get to Jesus, even though he needed Jesus to, to heal him from his paralysis. And, and physically, that was true of the paralytic, but spiritually, it's true of all of us. It says in Romans 8, from verse 6 to 8, um, let me actually just read that, and it, it's describing our condition before we receive the Spirit, before we get born of the Spirit or get born again. Ah. Romans 8, it says um, in verse 6, uh, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on, on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, uh, that's a bit of a, a weak translation. It, it, it literally says the, the, the carnal mind or the, or the fleshly mind is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, in other words, the, those who are in the flesh are those who are not yet in the Spirit, who don't yet have the Spirit. They're not yet born of the Spirit. It says though, in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're hostile to God. Before, while we're in the flesh, we're hostile to God. We hate God. We cannot please God. We cannot submit to His law. We cannot submit to His law, word. We, we, in fact, we don't want to. In other words, spiritually, we're in exactly the same situation that that paralytic was. We need Jesus to cure us of that, but that very thing that we need to be cured of keeps us away from Jesus, the, one who, the only one who can cure us. And that's where his friends come in. Because they'd obviously, because they could walk, they'd obviously walked around and come to some of Jesus' meetings and heard him preach, and their hearts were changed, and they went to their friend and said, listen here, you know, you need to meet this Jesus. And eventually, somehow, they could convinced him, and they were carrying him on this mat. And who knows how far they carried him. But they carried him all the way to Jesus' house. But then, they couldn't get in because there were too many people. But they didn't let that stop them. It says, I love the way it says it here. Um, it says, uh, Since they could not get him to Jesus. That's what they wanted to do. They knew if we can only get him to Jesus. What do you do with paralyzed people? What do you do with people who cannot themselves come to Jesus? You get them to Jesus. Even if that means you must go up onto the roof. Even if that means you must rip the roof open. Even if that means you must get a bit creative you know, about how to do it. You get them to Jesus. You know, sometimes an outward focus is, sometimes it's, it's going and preaching the word to people and driving out demons and, and healing the sick. But sometimes it's just carrying someone on a mat along with a bunch of friends, metaphorically speaking, through prayer and through encouragement to get them to Jesus. If you can only get them to Jesus and, and not stopping at obstacles. Oh, you know, Jesus is busy. There are too many people. I, we cannot get him. You know, do whatever you need to do. You know, if you need to, in prayer, metaphorically, rip open the roof and let the person down to get them to Jesus. Get them to Jesus because he's the one that can heal them. 
And you know what? If Je when Jesus sees your faith that causes you to do that, He won't notice whatever you else you have broken in order to do to get that person to Jesus, to Him. He'll only see your faith. And He'll say, arise and walk. But not only is Jesus the one who can heal them of the thing that keeps them away from Jesus. Now, I, I, I have this picture in my mind. I don't know if you cats don't like water, most cats that I know of. But I have this picture of a little kitten, you know, where it's somehow fallen into a river. And now they're sitting there on a rock, you know, all wet and dripping and looking pathetic, you know. And then someone comes closer, you know, uh, you know, in the streaming river, sort of wading through the river and wants to take the cat, pick them up and take them to safety. What does the cat do? <laughs> you know, scratching and biting, you know, and <laughs> clawing at the person because they think this person is coming to save them. You know, I'm already, I almost drowned, and now you want to come and kill me. You know, you're coming in, at, I just made it onto this rock, and now you're coming to attack me on this rock. And, and as natural human beings, sometimes that's what we are like. Jesus comes wading through the water, and he just wants to take us to safety. And we like that little kitten, you know, <laughs> trying to get, you know, biting Jesus and scratching him, you know, when he just wants to save us. He just wants to help us. But notice what Jesus does here. I mean, you can see the deeper level of his healing. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then you know, the scribes and stuff grumbling and, you know, in their hearts. And Jesus, through a prophetic insight, you know, knows in his spirit. We, we know this wasn't just his divinity that he was exercising. Because it says immediately he knew. If it was his divine omniscience, his all-knowingness that he was using, he would have known before it happened. Jesus temporarily and voluntarily laid down not his divine attributes but the exercise of his divine attributes so they could live a fully human life and when jesus ministered he ministered in the gifts of the holy spirit like we do that's why his ministry only started after he got baptized in the holy spirit at the jordan got filled with the holy spirit so even in that even in this is an example to us Okay, so it says immediately knew in his heart, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Uh, he says, your sins are forgiven, and then they grumbled in their hearts, and he, and he said, why are you saying these things in your heart? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take up your mat, and walk? Now, the one is a visible miracle of healing. When a paralytic gets up and walks, you can see it. It's visible. So, so it's a visible miracle. The other one, the forgiveness of sins, is an invisible miracle. So you can't see it. So it seems like the invisible, on the surface, that the invisible miracle is easier. Because it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but you can't really see whether it actually happened. Right? But it says, so that you can know that I do the invisible miracle. So that, I, so that you can see I do the spiritual healing. I'm now going to do the physical healing. So he said, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And this guy got up and walked out in front of all of them to their great amazement and astonishment. And that shows us that Jesus' healing is not just physically on the surface. It is that, but it's also deeper. It's the healing of our sin sickness on the inside. He doesn't only heal our physical paralysis, but He heals our spiritual paralysis that keeps us away from God and from Him. His healing goes a lot deeper than we realize. It's much more radical than we realize. He gives us the full healing. It, that's, that's why Hebrews says he, he's able to save to the uttermost those who trust in him. 
Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, they're going on, you know, you're always blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God only? And you know what? They're actually right. Sometimes we think, no, but I can also forgive sins. You know, if Jock sins against me, if he comes and assaults me and punches my teeth out, okay, Jock's not that kind of guy, but, but if he did, hypothetically speaking, you know, and he sins against me like that, then I can forgive him, right? Yes, I can forgive him for sinning against me, but I cannot forgive him for sinning against anyone else. But this paralytic had not sinned against Jesus, or had he? Yes, you see, that's the thing. All sin ultimately is committed against God. That's why God can forgive all sin. And that's why Jesus can forgive all sin, even though this was the first time during his earthly ministry he'd met this paralytic. He could say, I forgive your sins, even though they're committed against other people. I forgive them. Why? Because I'm God. Jesus is God who can forgive sins, and he was just proving it to them there. So, I just want to, in closing, encourage us. You know, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus went through a lot in order to be able to be so radically hospitable, to so, so, show such radical hospitality, to, to have a, such a radical heart of love, and to, to, to be able to extend such radical healing to us. He experienced exactly the opposite. When he came to us, he experienced radical inhospitality. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. In fact, Jesus was not only crucified, he was crucified outside of the city. He was, as it were, chased outside of the city as a, as a, as a picture of rejection and crucified there, outside the city, at the place of the rejected, at the place who, of those who did not receive hospitality. So he had to suffer radical you know, rejection and inhospitality to be able to show us his radical hospitality. You know? When he came to us as human beings, you know, he didn't experience a, a heart of radical love. He experienced exactly the opposite. Here was one person who never sinned, who never did anything wrong against anyone. And what did mankind, what did we as mankind do with him? We killed him. We tortured him to death. That's what was in our hearts towards him. And not only did he not experience healing, but he took our sicknesses, our diseases, our sin sickness upon himself with no one to heal him so that he could extend all of those things to us and to those around us, even those who cannot get themselves to Jesus. Father, we just want to thank you for this time we can spend together and just once again see your heart and how you used community to reach out to people and to draw people in and to heal people to save to the uttermost and lord we we want to be part of we want to be such a community lord where where you are present jesus and where we can bring people to you so that they can be restored so that they can be healed lord we know so many people lord who desperately need you lord and we pray lord that you'll help us to be a community of faith like those four men lord we don't even know their names lord but but they recorded what they did is recorded in scripture lord and we pray lord god that that we'll be like those four nameless men that we will in faith carry our friends and our family and our colleagues 
and whoever else, carry them to Jesus. Because we know that if we can just get them to Jesus, He will heal them. He will save them. He will forgive them. Please help us to have their faith. To have faith like them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.